Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. It is your boy, Dr. Mark List. And before we get into it today, we're going to start with a joke from the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. That is where you can contact me, uh, let me know what you think about the show, uh, email me with any ideas for articles, any review things that you want us to hit up. Um, and again, that's primarycarepod at gmail.com. Uh, and before we get into today's episode, uh, the first joke that I have from an anonymous listener, uh, this uh, Dr. List, uh, why don't ants get COVID? Answer, because they have tiny little antibodies. Anti-bodies. Ooh, that was so good. I almost, that almost hurt. That was so good. All right. So if you have any questions, concerns, anything you want to hit us up at, uh, let us know at primarycarepod at gmail.com. And let's, Bob, uh, hit up the episode and let's start us up. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients. It should not be used in medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced in my own time and solely reporting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views, policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, well. Welcome back to the podcast, pod girls, pod boys, pod people, to another episode of the Primary Care Pod at gmail.com. That's not what I want to say. Primary Care Pod, uh, I am your boy, Dr. Mark List. There is no email address in the podcast title. That is my mistake. Uh, I am too lazy to edit things out, as you guys know. Uh, we today are talking about something that I think is valuable to talk about because it is something that I believe in the near future will be the role of primary care providers that this is something that we can now take over control of. And right now, it, 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 it is in the realm and has always been in the realm of one of our other uh, specialties uh, in medicine, not primary care, um, and that is acute appendicitis, uncomplicated acute appendicitis. So somebody who's not septic, somebody who's not had a ruptured appendix yet, somebody who um, has the classic right lower quadrant pain, uh, you know, tenderness, uh, elevated white count, active infection, and forever and the day, uh, this has been the role of general surgery. But I believe that in our lifetimes, well, definitely my lifetime, I strongly believe that this will change and this will be primary care's job to manage most cases, the majority of cases of acute appendicitis. Now, why do I say that? This trial comes to us from JAMA just a couple of months ago, uh, you know, January 11th was when this article came out. And this is not the first time that we have had an article about medically treating. Oh, that's a lot of fire. That's a lot of fire trucks driving by. Okay. Uh, hopefully everyone's okay. Um, so what are we talking about? We're talking about acute appendicitis. Now, this study looks at the effect of oral moxifloxacin right? Just outpatient oral moxifloxacin versus IV ertapenem plus oral levofloxacin. Now, why is that second regimen a thing? Uh, well, there have been previous trials comparing surgery to IV ertapenem for a couple of days, followed by uh, and, and titrating down to oral levofloxacin, right? So these cover uh, a wide spectrum of potential um, pathogens that are responsible for, you know, all kind of GI pathogens that could be responsible for uh, acute appendicitis. 
And so what they showed in this study that this straight oral course versus an IV followed by oral course was that there was pretty much, pretty much, there was very similar results. I, I'm going to be careful about my words here because technically the oral, um, the oral antibiotics, the oral moxifloxin by itself, okay, was technically non was technically inferior, did not meet the non-inferiority margin, margin, okay? But the difference was fractions of a percent. So this was 3.8% difference. So in the oral moxifloxin group, so these patients came in and uh, were diagnosed with acute appendicitis and were randomized to the oral versus the IV then oral, okay? And you either got seven days of 400 milligrams per day of moxifloxacin versus came in, got two days of ertapenem, one gram per day, followed by five days, so again, similar seven-day course, of oral levofloxacin, 500 milligrams per day. And in, and in this arm, because it was done in a previous trial, they also added flagell 500 TID. Okay, so you have, in, in on one hand, you had just straight seven days of oral moxifloxacin, okay? And they, they, they did hospitalize all these people just to watch them. And in the one group with just the orals, 70% of people at one year had no further issues, right? So they were discharged from hospital. They didn't have surgery. They didn't have recurrent appendicitis at a full year, okay? So at a full year, 70%, the majority of people with just oral moxifloxacin were fine, didn't need surgery, didn't have a recurrence, nothing like that. With the IV treatment, it was 73%, almost 74%. And the difference again between the two groups was 3.6%. And the confidence interval in this actually exceeded the non-inferiority margin. So technically, yes, the giving them IV antibiotics and then switching over to orals. So a two days IV, two days IV to five days oral was slightly, uh, slightly better right? Uh, basically, we weren't talking about superiority. It was just non-inferiority. And yes, uh, it, it does appear that oral moxifloxin was uh, slightly inferior. Now, that being said, both groups, the overall majority of patients did, did great. And, and why do I think that this is going to be changing? Well, in, you know, healthcare in general, there's lots of things that we have done because why do we do them? Because we have always done them. And I had a case of a young adult with acute appendicitis last year. And I had read previous studies. We're going to get into those previous studies, okay, because this is not the first study. And I talked to the doc. Uh, I talked to the surgeon on call, and I said, hey, I got a 21-year-old, super healthy guy, uh, white counts up, got right lower quadrant pain. Um, I got an image. Here, I, I, I always talk about how the studies, uh, with, with med students I have in the clinic, I always talk about how the, um, the studies say ultrasound is great. You should do ultrasound first line. At our institution at Anawa, um, at the Anawa Medical Group, uh, we have big issues with our radiologist slash ultrasound tech saying, ultrasound won't be able to tell if there's uh, appendicitis, you need a CT scan. And, and I, I I get very upset by that, but our, our team, our staff do not feel comfortable making that diagnosis. They say, we're going we're gonna to basically tell you that we can't tell you that, and so you're going to get a CT scan. And I have still ordered the ultrasound, and they have read basically cannot rule out appendicitis, cannot rule in appendicitis, I forget what the exact wording was, and we had to go to CT anyway. So in our institution, I have to use a CT scan, but your institution, your ultrasound techs, your radiologist might be comfortable diagnosing that with an ultrasound because the guideline says you need an ultrasound. Anyway, so I diagnosed this kid with an ultrasound. Not a kid, he's 21, um, but I diagnosed this young adult with appendicitis. 
okay, with a CT scan. Called the surgeon on call and said, hey, I know that uh, we're now treating a lot of these people medically. Uh, is this somebody who I can just admit um, and, and put him on IV antibiotics um, and call the hospitalist and, and admit him? And the surgeon basically laughed on the phone and was like, yeah, they only do that at major academic centers. And then I talked to a partner who said they don't even do it at like Mayo, which is like, you know, one of the major academic centers in the U.S. And maybe near your academic center, they are doing this. Um, but it is definitely not the regional trend here in the upper Midwest. And I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit angry about that because there have been many things that even in the course of my short medical career, from the time I was a medical student that we used to admit for things, uh, like for example, DVT, new onset DVT, first ever DVT. Uh, we used to admit, uh, put them on blood thinners, make sure they were stable, discharge them the next day. And now outpatient treatment with DVT, you know, using your DOAX and even other anticoagulation, very, very possible. And, and and now kind of more than norm. We don't usually just admit somebody for DVT. We just put them on a DOAC and send them away. And then if they want to switch to Coumadin later, they can do that. And, and I know that some of that's medication changes, but even during COVID, I got to raise up uh, some of our local um, docs here at Anawa. One of my... Uh, not direct partners, but over on, let's call them Annual West uh, Clinic. Uh, one of my partners over there uh, has overseen our um, our home healthcare team. And we saw over a hundred patients uh, at one time at home with COVID on home oxygen, watching their, ox watching their O2 sats, giving them home oxygen, having nurses go into the home and check them out. I had a patient on eight liters of oxygen. Maybe I told this story already on a podcast episode. I, I don't want to don't want to you know sound like an old man who can't remember the stories I've told on these episodes. But I had a patient on eight liters at home, chilling out at home, using our home healthcare team because he didn't want to be in the hospital. And these are things that you know previous influenza seasons we would never consider just home O2. And now because of you know need for hospital beds during the surge and everything else like that, we found ways to make it work. And you know what? As far as the data we have, there weren't necessarily like worse outcomes in these people because, again, these were the people that we could self-select that, you know, didn't have excessive hypoxia. They just needed some oxygen. They were just hanging out in the hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so we have adapted over time the way we practice medicine based on evidence and based on need. And here's a case where we have just always gone in there and we have just operated, period, end of story, and been done. Right, that, that's just been acute appendicitis. A chance to cut is a chance to cure, right? And here, if you go back, the initial 2015 trial, looking at this issue, okay? A, APPAC trial, okay? This was a, a previous, uh, you know, uh, article six years ago when I first read about it and I was super excited because I said, this is the future. This is the future of appendicitis treatment. It's no longer going to be general surgeon. It's going to be you, the primary care physician, who's going to be prescribing these antibiotics, admitting the patient, watching them, and then if things go bad, if there are complications, then getting the surgeon involved. So in this study, in the first study in 2015, one-year success, 73%. Again, almost identical to what we saw in this trial again. So again, really good outcomes, and now we've seen multiple trials with consistent data that over 70% of people treated this way do just fine, okay? Now, why is there value in doing this? What, what's so wrong about just going and treating surgically? First of all, it's not wrong. It's the gold standard. This is the experimental arm, right? But the idea is that there are fewer treatment-associated complications, right? Surgery is not benign. Surgery has many complications, right? Even in young, healthy people, you can have surgical complications, bleeding, swelling, uh, infections, surgical site infections, MRSA, things like that. Uh, it's not benign, right? Um, and in the two treatment arms, right? So the treatment arm with surgery, 
20.5% of people were diagnosed or had some kind of complication related to their hospitalization and surgery, right? Versus 3%, 2.8% in this initial trial in 2015 had some kind of complication and the majority is usually C. diff, right? Now, I guess you could consider that treatment failure, those 30% of people who needed surgery anyways, right? You could consider that a failure. I wouldn't argue with you. And so then the numbers would look a little bit closer. Uh, shorter median length of sick leave, right? So how long are people out in the antibiotic arm? Seven days, seven days they were out for their initial sick leave versus 19 for people that end up having to have surgery and complications, et cetera, compared to surgery, right? So subsequent follow-up from this trial six years ago now has shown a five-year follow-up, okay? Five years success rate. And so instead of it being 73% of 61%. So only additional 12% of people end up five years later, even needing it. The majority of people still did fine five years later with no need for surgical complication, everything else uh, success. Okay. Compared with surgery, five years, even with surgery, 90% of people were fine, but 10% of people who are, he even had surgery still had post-surgical complications still had issues, right? I have an 18 year old patient who had, uh, just had uh, appendectomy last year and now has a massive uh, surgical site uh, and inguinal hernia following his, his surgery, right? Uh, incisional site hernia. Um, and again, that's probably, that's probably operator error, that's probably surgery error, but again, it happens. Long-term quality of life, right, was uh, I, I don't really understand that, so I'm not going to jump into that. But so when, when they when they interviewed patients and this five-year follow-up, quality of life measures, how happy were you, yada, 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 79% in the treatment arms, 80% in the surgery arm. So very similar in terms of quality of life, uh, patient satisfaction rates, okay? Now, they've also done this in kids. Again, one-year success rate around 70% in kids uh, doing antibiotics versus uh, surgery um, in kids. The disability days for the kids were, again, about seven days for the antibiotics versus 11 days for kids following surgery. And for caregivers, uh, only three days with antibiotics versus four and a half days, four days uh, in that range for caregivers, right? And high healthcare satisfaction groups for both groups. So again, you aren't making people unhappy by not giving them surgery. Uh, people are just as happy because there's similarly good outcomes, okay? So when we talk about this... Um, you know, effectiveness, you know, 87% to 85%, non-operative management was decreased disability, five days to eight days, similar treatment associated complications, 3% to 3%, very similar quality of life. And this was at a European trial. So again, there's been multiple studies now, multiple studies that have confirmed that this is a viable thing. And as we go forward, you know, I, these are topics that I think you will see in your life. You will see, and again, if you are somebody who uh, is, uh, you know, in charge of your local group. If you're a rural physician and you don't have access to a general surgeon and you're shipping somebody, you know, an hour away, you know, and, and you're in the ER and it's a matter of, you know, what do I do with this patient who's got an acute uncomplicated appendicitis? You know, do they have to go an hour away? Well, if you don't have a surgeon around, you know, that might be an okay thing to ship them out. But if you're in a small town and you can even have your surgeon on board to consult, you know, you can start making these decisions, I think, because we now have the data to say, okay, it's okay to use a couple of days of IV antibiotics, switch to orals, or now in this new study, this APPAC2 trial, even just doing seven days of moxifloxacin, 
again, they, they put these people in the hospital, but this is something that, you know, you could put them in the hospital for pain control, give them a couple of days, watch them, and then they could go home on oral moxifloxacin with, again, close follow-up and close monitoring. So I think that we will see here in the next five to 10 years as reimbursements change, as surgeries no longer uh, become this humongous, you know, driver, and we're trying to reduce costs in terms of ACOs, right? So, you know, in, in the fee-for-service world, in the fee-for-service world, when we're trying to, you know, do as much as we can basically to get reimbursed, and these hospital systems are like, yeah, surgeries are great, surgeries are good, they're they're what keep our keep our lights open, and keep our light keep our lights open, keep our lights on, keep our doors open. And as we switch to more of an ACO, where cost savings and, and and shared savings are much more of a model, and these expensive expensive surgeries are things we want to try to avoid, and long hospitalizations are things we want to avoid. Potentially, then we could be doing a lot of these things treating somebody with an oral antibiotic for seven days, having home health care, reach out to them, check on them, make sure their pain's well controlled, basically be doing hospital at home. This is something that I think that in our lifetime, surgery is no longer going to be the first line of care. I, I strongly believe that with this data that we will be seeing a switch to antibiotics driving the initial gold standard choice of care and surgery being the if you fail antibiotics, then we will do this. And I, I, again, I think the data is that good. I think that I think it, it's all going to become a matter of culture. I think it's all going to be a matter of being driven by probably, unfortunately, instead of it being driven by science and and primary care docs and and internists and hospitals, I think it'll be driven by cost. I think it'll be driven by cost savings. Um, I think the economic factors will be what drives changes like this, not necessarily the medical changes. Um, so these are types of things that, why is it important to stay up to date in things that aren't even primary care? Because sometimes, you know, primary care, we are the pluripotent stem cell physicians. We can handle a lot of different things. Are we experts in everything? No. But being up to date and, and, and knowing what's happening in different fields, right, as we become less invasive, right, as we, as we start getting better and better therapies for things, we're going to start seeing, uh, you know, I, I have a surgeon friend of mine who tells me that, he thinks that breast surgeons are going to be obsolete within a decade or two because we're going to have targeted medications, targeted therapies that are so good to specific tumors that you won't even need to go in there and do this, you know, surgeries and surgeries and surgeries. You're going to be able to go in and you're going to be able to treat these uh, breast cancers. Uh, and, that's, and that's his vision. That's his what he thinks in the future for two decades from now. And, and, and this is going to happen, I think, in many other things. As we get better biologics, as we get better um, targeted treatments, uh, monoclonal antibodies for certain things. I think that we are going to be seeing more and more things fall into the realm of medicine. And honestly, as long as the data drives us there, and as long as it's better for patient care and being less expensive and being less invasive with better outcomes or, you know, less morbidities associated with them, it's probably for the best. So that's that's also me with rose-colored glasses. Um, but again, I think that anything that uh, we can do to help patients and to improve patient care and outcomes, I think it's good to stay informed. And this, I think we're going to be fighting for a while. Again, I think it won't be necessarily the medicine that drives this. It'll be the economics that will likely change this. But I, I could foresee, you know, in the next decade, uh, just like a lot of other admission criteria has changed, I think we'll be treating uh, acute appendicitis uh, with medications instead of surgery. Who knew? Who knew? Anyways, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, putting up with the uh, semi-non-regular schedule. I, it's been a lot more easy for me. It's been a lot more easy. Man, I'm a, a 
grammar's great. I, I'm so excellent with my grammar. Uh, I, I think that the every two week schedule has been really a positive change for me. If we have good studies, if there's new data that comes out, if there's new studies that come out, new guidelines that come out, we'll probably go every week. But picking topics, uh, especially when I've been really busy the last couple months, um, with stuff outside of the podcast and, and work and family and things like that. The, the two weeks has been really good. And honestly, since we've slowed down, uh, we've actually had more viewers uh, listening to every episode. So uh, great, great response from, from people. Uh, super, super happy with the, the increase in, in listener base. Um, uh, soon we won't be number seven in Slovakia. Maybe we'll be number two in Slovakia. Who knows? Uh, but anyways, thanks for tuning in. This has been Dr. Mark List with Primary Care Pod. Again, I appreciate you listening. A reminder, you don't need to stay up all night. Stay up to date. Thanks and have a great week.